0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause.
1: To me, it is existentially important that America actually becomes a democracy. And the only way that has any chance of happening is, one, if Democrats get rid of the filibuster or change it so it's not a 60-vote supermajority requirement. And two, if they then prioritize democratizing this country. —
2: So welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box. Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm here with Ezra Klein. We're going to do something a a little bit different today, uh, but right before we got into it, I did want to mention this will be your very last chance to get in on the Weeds White Paper Lottery. Uh, If you want to pre order a copy of 1 Billion Americans, that's my book. It's about why there should be 1 Billion Americans. Uh, Then you tweet a picture of your proof of purchase uh, at me so I see it. You will be entered into a drawing. If you win, you will get to select the the white paper of the week that myself and Dara and Jane will discuss. It's a lot of fun. It's cool. But speaking of fun, uh, we wanted to talk about the filibuster and do it in a little bit of a different way.
1: One billion pre-orders. That's the, that's the goal here. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll settle for um, a
2: million. You know, it's it's realistic.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's fair. You want to you want to you want to hit achievable goals. So. This is going to be, as Matt said, a little bit different. We thought it'd be fun to do it this way. So I've been working, everybody knows um, who listens to this show, that I am obsessed with the filibuster, that I think it is, there is no single decision that if Democrats win the White House and Senate in 2020, there is no single decision they will make. They will decide as much of what happens to their governing agenda as whether or not they choose to abolish or otherwise change the filibuster. If they do not, their agenda, most of it is dead. There are a couple of things they can do through budget reconciliation, but the vast majority of things they want to do, they cannot do. They will not have 60 votes or anywhere close to it. Um, and Joe Biden, for all of his uh, personal charm, is not going to be able to get Republicans to sign on to anything of the scale that he has promised. So if they leave the filibuster in place, their agenda, most for the most part, is dead. The odds are they will leave the filibuster in place. Um, the odds are that just like happens every year, the fear of change will overwhelm the fear of leaving climate change. Um, I'm sitting here uh, in in California where the sky is red right now um, and almost every other problem America and the world faces to fester. So I've been working on a big piece trying to pick up this debate and and, and engage it more directly. Uh, and as often happens when I write big pieces, I send them to Matt for for thoughts. Uh, Matt's a, a very good editor and very good at pointing out the weaknesses in an argument. And so I sent this piece to him. But rather than do these thoughts in a normal editing process, we're gonna we're gonna talk it out uh, here on the weeds. So the structure of my piece so people know um this should come out next week or the week after maybe is I want to unearth every major argument that people make for the filibuster. I want to I want to take seriously the case for why it is a good thing to have in American in the American political system and assess each argument on the merits and try to decide is this an argument that is Good and, and we should believe. Is it an argument that is reasonable and people should decide if they agree with the trade off? Or frankly, as is the case with a lot of the arguments that swirl in this debate, is it an argument that is outright wrong and, and should be discarded? Um, but, but so Matt has this monstrous 8,000 plus word piece. So what do you think? I think it's really good. I think this is a
2: incredibly important topic. It's also, so it's, it's a different approach, right? It's very calm. This is not a screed against the filibuster, uh, which is good because for those of us who have been thinking about this for a long time, it's like, it's a little infuriating. And I think you do a good job of like staying calm and taking people through it. I, I also thought something that was really, um, Strong in it that, that I hope we can talk about here is that you you sort of foreground how odd this is, right, that the United States, not just the filibuster itself, which comes about through a, a curious history, uh, but contextualize it in terms of a political system that in general just like makes it more difficult
1: to legislate. And, and I, I hope you can sort of explain
2: that to people because I think it's it's really
1: important. So this is something that I actually came across uh, working on the research for this piece. There's a piece from 2009. uh, It's by Alfred Stepan and Juan Linz. And it's actually a review of a couple of different books on, on American democracy. But something they do in the piece is they look at its 22 countries, including America, and they assess how many electorally generated veto players each country has. So how many institutional actors who are voted into office in some way or another by by the people? Does each country have who can stop a major change from happening? And the reason this is important before this is not looking at the filibuster in a direct way at all. What this is simply asking is how difficult is it to act in different political systems? And, And this is really striking because people have this idea like the, the Senate is a cooling saucer of democracy, and that's about the filibuster and so on, um, that if we somehow got rid of a supermajority requirement in the U.S. Senate, that American politics would fall to the quote-unquote tyranny of the majority. Um, and this is just wrong. So of the 22 other peer nations, this is 23 countries they're looking at in total, more than half of the countries in the sample only had one veto point at all. It is the prime minister's majority in the lower legislative chamber, only one electorally generated veto point. Um, another 7.5 had two veto points. Um, the reason you have a 0.5 is that France has these two states their um, political system can be in uh, called cohabitation, which Matt can explain better than I can. So that 7.5 had two veto players. Then there are only two countries in the sample with three electorally generated veto players. And there was only one country of the 23 with four, and that's America. And by the way, when, when they say four, they're not counting the Supreme Court, which they don't count as an electorally generated veto player. They're counting the House. They're counting the Senate. They're counting the president. And they're counting the states because in order to change the constitution in America, you need to have the states signing on. And those are um, uh, through the state legislatures. And that's an electorally generated veto player by their definition. So if you before you get into anything else going on in our city, System, before you get into the filibuster, before you get into um, the uh, Supreme Court, we have a system of checks and balances and institutions that have simultaneous democratic legitimacy from different democratic electorates or sometimes non-democratic electorates. We have a really difficult system in which to do anything. The, the The point of the Stepan and Lin's piece is that this is a generator of inequality, that there is a relationship between systems in which it is harder to act and the rise of economic inequality. But just putting even that aside, what I think this should tell you is it America's political system is very hard to govern within, with or without the filibuster. My argument in this piece is the filibuster adds a level of difficulty on this. It takes it from very hard, which was intended to functionally impossible in normal circumstances, which was not intended. But there's no world here where we're going to be moving to some smooth, easy to, easy to wrangle uh, political system. To me, that's critical context here,
2: right? That if you move the Senate to pure majoritarianism, the United States would still be compared to most other, you know, well-established democracies, a system with a high number of veto players and a high degree of policy stability. And, you know, people can sort of debate the merits of Policy stability and, and veto players, but we are an extreme outlier right now. And even with the sort of reform that you favor, uh, would continue to be a, a pretty significant outlier. So the you know the sort of cooling saucer concept, it's not it's not false that you know a supermajority requirement sort of exacerbates uh, or enhances cooling sauceriness, but it's at least um, questionable whether that's really sort of necessary. Well, I think I maybe disagree with your
1: analysis. That's what I want. I want want the disagreements.
2: Right. Which is so something you say, because you're sort of going through different arguments here. And one thing you mention is that um, you think this is kind of ideologically neutral, Right. And that there, you know, is no sort of systemic advantage that one person or another gets. Um, but I read a long time ago a, a book by a, a guy named George Sebelis uh, called Veto Players, How Political Institutions Work. And it's this kind of formal political science thing it was written in in 2002. Um but he shows with some different kinds of math that basically countries that have more veto players, right, which the United States has a lot of, have more policy stability and they have um, various kinds of characteristics. His conclusion actually sounds similar to uh the, the, what what you said about inequality, except he casts it in a more uh, favorable way, which is that countries with more veto players have more stable property rights, uh, he says, and more stable, they're more immune to sort of macroeconomic populism. Uh, and then uh, I, Michael Munger, who's a libertarian and economist, he wrote a sort of review of Sebulis' book that I was just looking up again uh, as we were preparing for this. And he says, like... Uh, You know, like, this is great. It's great that America has veto players. But really, what we should have done was adopted uh, John C. Calhoun's constitutional proposals. C- Calhoun wanted to say that we needed to make uh, veto players even more cumbersome in the United States. And his idea was he wanted to basically make it impossible for the federal government to legislate against slavery. Um, and some libertarian scholars uh To be clear, they're not saying that slavery is good, but they're saying that that impulse is correct, that it would provide stronger protections for private property rights, which would create more sort of prosperity and and stability over the long haul. And to me, this conflict over the filibuster, I mean, if you talk to senators, they get into a lot of sort of Senate nonsense uh, about everything. But it does, I think, come down to this question of the strength of property rights versus the possibilities of activist government, uh, which I think has like quite serious ideological implications, and that in turn is one of the reasons why it's hard to make change.
1: I let me think about this for a second. So, so to, to cast some of the argument I'm dealing with here just a little bit more, one of the the. The things I'm dealing with in both directions is the idea that the filibuster will either getting rid of it will either advantage Democrats because the way I would frame that argument is legislating and and being able to act within the context of American government is inherently a progressive act. Conservatives simply want to do less. They want to stand athwart the government yelling stop. And that is something that uh, a gridlocked government is very good for doing, whereas making it simpler to do things is just going to mean Democrats pass a better health care system. They pass uh, climate change bills, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the other side, the uh, getting rid of the filibuster might advantage Republicans simply because the Senate, in its current composition, has a Republican lean because of the way uh, the American political parties are distributed across states. And small states tend to be whiter. They tend to be more native- born. They tend to be more Republican. Um, and so that could that could be a way in which it helps Republicans. So I want to flag that because it might be worth coming back to that yes. as the tension here. The way I would put it is I don't think the filib getting rid of the filibuster is neutral in the current context. Um, I, I, that would be going too far and I agree with what you're saying. It's that I, I want to be careful in a piece like this about predicting what the future holds, that any move of this severity in American government, just a history of anything like it is the consequences are not going to be what people expect. It just will not be the case that it just goes in one direction. And so the thing I say in the piece, which I think is true is that there is a, a, there's a good argument that if you take the theory of conservatism that you will hear expressed at panels at the Heritage Foundation seriously, uh, just making the government more capable of governing and legislating is going to, to help progressives because they pass more legislation and they have more legislation they want to pass. And, and In addition, a lot of what Republicans want to do, tax cuts, getting rid of government programs, you can do some of that through budget reconciliation anyway. But- I don't think the Republican Party is that thing. I think that is something you hear at panels at the Heritage Foundation and not actually in governance. And I think it's also changing pretty rapidly. And so I imagine a world where there is a future ethno national a a Republican Party that has more fully built an ethno-nationalist ideology and governing agenda, like— Donald Trump ran on that kind of thing, this sort of populist ethno-nationalism, but he didn't govern in that direction really at all. Um, uh, he governed as sort of a plutocrat who tweets, uh, with sort of an ethno-nationalist flavor. But you could imagine in you know some kind of future successor of his, maybe Donald Trump Jr., who would actually have a lot more to say on this, right? Like who would want to pass bills. Unleashing police officers and protecting the suburbs and um, regulating immigration, you know, even more. Although the president currently has a lot of power on on immigration, you know, and like uh, you know, building the wall and so on and so forth. And they just might have more of an agenda. And in that world, the filibuster might be useful for them. We've talked on the show before, Matt, about the way in which the Republican Party seems to have collapsed into a miasma of cultural grievance as its central unifying properties, and. It's hard to figure out how you manifest cultural grievance into a legislative agenda. But I take that as a solvable problem. And I imagine they could do that if they wanted to over the course of a couple of years. And so it's more that I don't want to say for sure that you you imagine Biden and the Democrats get rid of the filibuster in 2021 and in 2024, 2028, Nikki Haley or Tom Cotton win the presidency and republicans take back the senate because the democrats haven't done anything to make america more small d democratic uh or that they failed in their in their effort at governance and they might have an expansive and ambitious agenda that they are now able to get through a lot more smoothly than than would have been true otherwise so
2: I think that that's probably right, you know, and it's I I think compared to what's sort of literally in, in the text, though, a little interestingly different, because it's not that it's non-neutral in partisan terms, because like you have two parties and they're going to do something, uh, but it is non-neutral in policy terms, right, that one consequence of the filibuster is that we can sit here, you know, journalists, you know, we could be in our in our Vox Slack or even just on Twitter. And we all know that there's a difference between a more populist Republican senator like Josh Hawley and a more conventional, you know, conservative like um. I don't know who's the most boring conventional conservative. Rob Portman. uh, Rob Portman, right? And then you can ask yourself okay, well, what difference does it make? What is the cash value of the difference between Hawley and Portman? And the answer is none, right? Because Hawley can like introduce a bill with four co sponsors saying he's going to repeal Section 230 protections for tech companies unless they all put up little American flags and like it's not going to pass and it's not going to pass because nothing is going to pass because the only kind of bills that pass are huge bipartisan emergency deals like the CARES Act or narrowly partisan budget reconciliation bills like the Trump tax cuts. And then, you know. Executive branch appointments are just sort of given over to, to to corporate lobbyists. Making it easier to legislate would make Democrats sort of just go further, right? Like more progressive ideas would pass than can pass in a in a filibuster universe. But on the right, it would actually, I think, change the the content. Right. Along the lines you're saying, it would make it much more realistic to try to do something about the things that more populist minded conservatives talk about. And that would be a real sea change uh, in American government in a way that I think people don't talk about that much. Filibuster reform is normally discussed on the left. And the terms of the discussion are typically, well, we could raise the minimum wage more if we did that. Or sometimes people will come back and, and this is the point I want to come to is they'll be like, well, we could ban abortion. But it's that there's so much ferment on the right. There's a lot of talk. And so much of it right now is empty talk. Uh, but everything in American politics is almost empty talk at the moment. So I feel like, you know, I I feel like that would be the sort of most interesting long term consequences is to sort of unleash policy creativity on the right in a way that is very it's it's hard to predict like what that would mean right but i think it would mean a much less libertarian america
1: but and there are two interesting things there that i want to that i want to take in turn so the one i want to come back to is this idea of a lot of american politics being empty policy talk which is really important but before we get to that i i want to talk about the way the filibuster paired with budget reconciliation tilts the agenda towards economic issues and ideas. So something that is happening on the right right now is a huge level of frustration that over the past couple of decades, social conservatives have been in this relationship with economic conservatives and they feel like they've been taken for a ride, that the economic conservatives get tax cuts and more tax cuts and like deregulation to put poison in streams and then more tax cuts. And what do the social conservatives get? Tweets, nothing. They get nothing. And so there's been this like big move on the Catholic right in particular to say that, you know, we have been screwed. We have been screwed. That is maybe an ideological thing that has happened inside the Republican coalition, but it also might reflect something else, which is, the way to get around the filibuster is this bizarre process called budget reconciliation, which was created in 1974. And it's a way of fast tracking the appropriation bills process. So you have some appropriation bills, particularly a House and Senate one, and you want to reconcile them into one appropriation bill and you don't want to take all of your time doing this. So they created this like way to do this technical process pretty quickly. Um, it's protected from the filibuster. You can't do amendments in the normal way. You can't debate it in the normal way and so on. Over time, people realized you could use this to get around the filibuster. So then they put these strictures on it. So the key ones, and this is something you'll hear called the bird rule. There are a bunch of parts of the bird rule, but the key three things in the bird rule are Every provision that goes through budget reconciliation has to be primarily about the budget, taxing and spending in nature. So you can't do regulations. You can't do things that aren't about taxing and spending. It can't increase a budget deficit outside of the 10 year window. This is why so many Republican tax cuts expire after 10 years because they are passed through budget reconciliation because then they can be bigger. But because they can't keep blowing up the deficit after 10 years, they have this exploding um, expiration date uh, under the theory that then they'll be popular. and and, and Congress will work to extend them. And then the third thing is it can't touch Social Security, which is a sort of random uh, bird roll stricture. Anyway, the thing this does is parties come into power, Republican or Democratic, and they look at their agenda and they ask themselves, what can pass here? Like what is important to us and what can pass? And important to us is one consideration, but can pass often means what can theoretically go through budget reconciliation? taxes can go through budget reconciliation. Healthcare can go through budget reconciliation. Economic things can go through there. But if you want to ban abortion, that cannot. If you want to ban porn, that cannot. If you want to get rid of Section 230, uh, unless people put American flags up, that cannot. And by the way, this is true on the Democratic side too. Um, It pushes towards things that are direct spending uh, changes. So for instance, if you want to do climate change uh, legislation, you could do a carbon tax, your budget reconciliation, that would be very straightforward. You may not be able to do, say, a clean energy standard or a renewable energy standard through budget reconciliation because that's a regulation affecting private industry. And so there's this way in which we've tilted the agenda towards these things. And that is actually weakened on the right, the social conservative wing of the party, because even to the extent they have ideas, um, they can't pass them. So they come to the Senate and they just die. Uh, I have heard many, many Republicans and some Democrats say that one reason McConnell doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster is he doesn't want to have to have votes with live ammunition on all these unpopular socially conservative ideas. But if you're a social conservative and you do want to have votes with live ammunition on it, you should really want to get rid of the filibuster because what the filibuster does right now is it creates a pathway for the economic conservatives to get their ideas passed into law. But you don't have that pathway. And so your stuff just languishes on the shelf.
2: Okay, so with that, uh, let's take a break. And then I do want to come back to this question of sort of basic tournament.
3: Support for The Weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds.
2: So one thing you hear, you hear Republicans say this is in your piece, you know, like, uh, watch what you wish for. You know, if you get rid of the filibuster, then we're going to come back with with all these these right wing bills. I've heard Democrats say that they regret having scrapped the filibuster for judicial nominations because now trump is confirming all these judges um and, and there have even been democrats saying well they think they should bring that back and this is the basic sort of case i guess being made right i mean if we want to put it in abstract terms is that people should be risk averse with their policy right and that it would be a bad trade to make it easier to achieve certain goals if in exchange the other side can achieve more goals and that you know i i mean i think this is a real disagreement among the democratic caucus about the the, the judicial thing that that went down there that a lot of people feel like it would have been better if obama had worked out some kind of deal had gotten some kind of people on the bench and then in exchange like Trump wouldn't have been able to fill the roster like that. And I mean, I I wonder what you think about that, because of all of all the sort of arguments, right? I mean, this is the one that's most like it's most straightforwardly true, right? That like Trump was able to confirm a lot of judges because they made it easier to confirm judges. Uh, If Democrats change the rules so that they can pass some of their bills, Republicans will come back and and pass some of their bills, too. And, you know, like interest groups, you know, have big concerns about this? And, and like, how how would you set people's mind at ease?
1: So I don't want to set people's minds at ease. Um, th- this is an important uh, move I want to make here. And it's why I pushed back a little bit on the idea that it it, it helps one side o- over the other. Of the arguments on the filibuster, the one that the other side may pass laws you don't like is true. Uh, so let me take the big version of this argument. And I want to talk about the, the 2013 reforms um, that, that you brought up. So on the big point here. It is absolutely true both sides will be able to legislate more easily. And the thing you will always hear from Democratic senators too is, I don't want to get rid of the filibuster because I've been in the majority. And this is something that I really want to present as a choice and a trade-off, not just an argument for abolition. The thing you are dealing with there is, do you prefer the benefits and the potential problems of governance to the benefits and the potential problems of paralysis. And this is something where I think there is actually, we should understand this as a structural difference between what is good for senators and what is good for voters. So for senators, it may actually be more useful to be able to block things in the minority and to have this power as an individual and then as a collective, and also be able to dodge accountability for what you didn't get done in the majority. There's like perfectly good reasons to prefer that as a member of the U.S. Senate. Um, It means you will never be without any power at all. Um, This is what they mean when they say they don't want the Senate to turn into the House. And it means you will always uh, be able to give some reason why you weren't able to fulfill your promises. But as an uh, electorate for voters, I think we should look at this very differently than that And, and, and for this reason. The way the feedback loop of American politics should work, just like in any democracy, is politicians present a, an agenda to voters. Voters decide between the two agendas they are presented with by politicians and vote one side or the other into office. That side uh, that got voted into the majority then delivers some rough facsimile of the agenda they promised. Voters then judge how that has changed their everyday lives. Like, did they get health insurance? Is the economy better? And then they decide whether to reelect those people or throw them out of office. That's a pretty straightforward feedback loop, and it's not perfect. And legislating is always hard. And like, look at other countries, it's hard there, too. But. It kind of works, right? You can kind of say, like, did I like what those folks did when they were in power or did I not like it and I want somebody else to get a turn? Instead, what we have in American politics is that the two sides present an agenda to the voters. The voters vote one of them in Um, to get a majority. You tend to need to do that over multiple election cycles because of the divided nature of our government and of our the staggered nature of our elections. Then that party is not able to deliver anything at all, like in any respect, like the agenda it promised to deliver. There's a huge amount of disappointment and frustration and dispiritedness among the people who voted for them and confusion among voters of why something didn't happen. Then there's a lot of argumentation coming up to the next election about whose fault it is that all these problems have gone unsolved. And the majority party accuses the minority of being obstructionist and the minority party accuses the majority party of trying to ram its agenda down the American people's throat. And then the American public tries to figure out who's right about that or more, I think, accurately just gets frustrated and tends to swing a little bit in the other direction. And then we just keep going through the cycle and the American public never gets anything like the kind of change it votes for. And I think you're just choosing between these two models of how to conduct politics. And I think it's pretty clear which one would be healthier for the system. But I understand also why senators prefer the other one.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like of the two of us, usually I'm I'm the cynical one and, and you're the more idealistic one. And to give some credit, I guess, to, to the senators talking their own book here, right? I think they have this vision in their mind. I I mean I guess you you discuss this in, in, in the piece as a under a separate heading, but they have this vision in their mind that, well, what's gonna happen here is that one view is okay, it's gonna be like the House, right? And in the House, at least according to senators, uh, the leadership just kind of cooks up bills and then they ram it through. Whereas in the Senate, at least in their idealized version of the Senate, Someone will set the agenda and it's like, okay, we're talking about climate now. But because of the filibuster, you're going to have to have like a real compromise, right? And there's going to be agency for all the individual senators as a minority party member. It's not just that the minority party can block, but the minority party can choose not to block, right? So uh, one of the few pieces of legislation that passed uh, in, in the Trump era was a sort of by Crapo authored partial rollback of the Dodd-Frank banking rules. And this was not eligible for budget reconciliation. So they needed Democratic votes to get it done. Most Democrats just voted against the bill, but several Democrats voted for it. And, you know, if you ask them, like, why did you vote for this bill? They would say, you know, some of the provisions were good, but also they would say like, well, they were substantively involved in the shaping of the legislation. I got this priority in, I got that priority in. And I do think that that is more than selfishness on the part of the senators. I think that it's appealing to a lot of Americans, right? I mean, I think a lot of people have this idea that the legislature should be this place of dynamism and individual effort. And when people say, Bad things about Congress or the recent trajectory of Congress that kind of, um, elimination of individual agency and the concentration of everything in, in leadership and making everything partisan is something that most voters at least say they they deplore. And so, you know, I think if you talk to like, I don't know, Michael Bennett or some of these uh, Tom Carper, these sort of more thoughtful, uh, filibuster friendly people, they're, they're reaching for this ideal, right, where like statesmen are going to crack. Compromises, um, and you're—I mean, you're—you're you're a polarization guy, um, and, and I assume have some some view on why that doesn't work, right? But it, like that—that's what people are aiming for. Not just well, I can block things, but that the ability to block leads to constructive compromise.
1: Yeah. So there are two things here that are worth um, a couple things here that you you need to pull apart. So one is the idea that the filibuster leads to deliberation. Right, and, and and that I think is its canonical role in American politics. That it ensures minority voices can be heard. That they can make an argument. Sometimes that argument will convince people. Um, famously in Mister. Smith Goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart's character uh, collapses from exhaustion, which leads the corrupt old lion senator to have a crisis of consciousness, and he tries to kill himself, and then he comes back in and confesses his whole scheme on the floor of the Senate. Sorry for the spoilers of an old Frank Capra movie. So deliberation is one version of that. Then there's compromise. Um, this is uh, li- this is related not to the filibuster's ability to hold things up, but to the filibuster's ability to impose a 60-vote supermajority requirement, uh, wherein you can't pass anything without getting compromise. Uh, And so in theory, at least, that should lead to compromise. Um, I have a sort of long discussion of this in the piece because I think this is very, very important. The key thing about this idea is that it's not really even wrong. It's actually true for the majority. Um, I've watched majorities govern, particularly Democratic majorities in this case, who I think are more like tend to have more full governing uh, agendas. And like they really do want to compromise. The mistake of that is assuming that the minority will want to compromise as well. Uh, I think that the the way that implicitly compromise has been understood in the U.S. Senate is it it is a gift the majority offers to the minority, and the filibuster is is a is an incentive for them to offer that gift. Um, one thing McConnell, and if anybody ends up destroying the the filibuster, having been speaking to a lot of moderate Democrats about this recently, it will have been Mitch McConnell because he disproved this theory. What McConnell showed, particularly in the Obama era, but not only, is that compromise is a gift the minority gives to the majority. And there's no reason for them to want to do it because if you have somebody like Joe Biden, before that Barack Obama, run for office saying that if you make me president, I'm going to make it so Republicans and Democrats work together again and pass all these great bills and, and, you know, American politics won't be so angry and bitter and you're going to like it better. And they succeed at that, then they get reelected with like 60% of the vote. And what McConnell understood is you can't offer that compromise. And so Already under his leadership, we've moved to Everything is written, for the most part, by the leadership offices. All the negotiations happen between them. But you could think about reconstructing the filibuster to have more of this uh, dynamic. So for instance, there are a lot of ways to do it such that you would actually get a lot more deliberation than you do now. Because right now, the filibuster works on um, basically demanding quorum calls and other weird procedural oddities. It very rarely creates any debate. And in fact, it is very frequent that the filibuster will be placed on the motion to move to a bill or the motion to debate a bill so that you are actually filibustering um, procedurally the debate that would have otherwise happened. Or because you have communicated a filibuster threat to leadership in advance, a bill that otherwise would have come to the floor to be debated won't ever get brought to the floor because the leadership is just like, eh, this can't pass. It's going to burn up all this floor time. We're not going to do it. So- um, there's always been a good play here by former Senator Tom Harkin from Iowa, who's a Democrat, who had this ratchet idea, which is that every couple of days during a filibuster, you would take a vote and if the vote failed, um, then like, the clock would reset and the next vote would require three fewer votes until you got down to a majority passage of a bill. And that would ensure eight days of debate on any bill that you wanted, that the minority wanted to ensure debate on. The question of how to demand compromise is simply harder. The issue is that compromise is electorally irrational for the minority party. The minority party wants the majority party to be seen as a failure. So I've read, as part of my my work on on this piece, uh, a book called Defending the Filibuster, the Soul of the Senate by uh, Ehrenberg and Dove. And Ehrenberg is a longtime Senate staffer. Dove was a parliamentarian. And it's a very... There's some good things about this book, and I don't want to be too hard on it, but it's a very weird book. It relies very heavily on the idea that like whoever's in the majority uh, hates the filibuster, and in the minority, um, they they want to get rid of it, or they 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 learn to love the filibuster. So it's functionally throughout a hypocrisy argument. They agree that the filibuster is being misused, but they basically say the problem is not the filibuster. The problem is hyperpartisanship and poor behavior among senators, and that's true. Um, The filibuster worked very differently for most of American history. From 1917 to 1970, there were, on average, fewer than one cloture votes a year to break a filibuster because filibusters were so rare. Now there are more than 85 a year. I mean, it's unbelievably different how the Senate works today than it was for most of the 20th century, but you're not getting rid of hyperpartisanship. And the behavior that hyperpartisanship generates, which is not like bad behavior, it is rational behavior, is not going away either. So the issue you get into here is not whether or not it would be nice to have the filibuster in a consensus and compromise oriented Senate with ideologically mixed political parties um, and a non nationalized political media such that you have a lot of room for compromise and the filibuster is a push in that direction. But in a hyperpartisan Senate, the nature of the filibuster becomes not an incentive to compromise but a uh, tool with which bills can be killed so the minority has a better chance of winning back the majority. And thus, deliberation becomes rarer and arguably compromise becomes rarer, although I don't exactly – I think compromise is just going to be rare under either circumstance. But yeah, like I don't want to be too cynical. I understand the Senate that senators yearn for. There's plenty of examples, and I talk to senators on both sides about this all the time. Like The easiest way to get a senator to talk is to ask them to criticize how the Senate works today. But the problem is, they can't change it because the way it works today is how the system needs it to work. This is what my entire book is about, and the filibuster works one way under the system. If we want it to work a different way, we can reconstruct a rule or a bill that does that. We can create incentives for the minority to compromise that are different. Like we could, we can be creative about this. But like the first step of wisdom is to say it doesn't do that now. So you cannot defend the way the Senate works now with the idea that it used to work differently. Like, that's great. But like, <laughs> like the thing about the old days to quote the wire is that they're the old days. Like we got to, we got to figure out what's happening in the institution now and what has been happening now for decades. It's not like a one year aberration, but decades of steady trends with clear structural drivers that no one has any idea how to reverse.
2: All right, let's, let's take a break. Cause I, I think that's a good sort of pivot point into some other topics.
0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So
2: I I think, you know, knowing you and and knowing this, this literature, right, that's really the key, I think, to Ezra Klein thought is that A lot of people who are old uh, or nostalgic see today as worse than the past in terms of how the legislature operates, and they yearn to go back, right? Whereas your view is that that 20th century, less polarized legislature is not just gone, but actually aberrational right? So we shouldn't expect there to be a way to bring it back. And we should we should learn to live with polarized political parties, which means having more majoritarian institutions, and simply just like not expecting that compromises will happen, which they don't in lots of countries, right? Like in in the UK, uh, there's almost never a compromise in Parliament, and it's fine. They've been living, you know, Gone along fine for hundreds of years. Uh, what happens is that the parties alternate in power, right? But they don't bargain uh, over almost anything, and when they do, it's like a huge crisis in British politics uh, because people don't expect there to ever be ever be be compromises. But this intersects with the odd way in which senators are elected in a way that I think gives people pause, right? Because there's a big senatorial bias toward low population states, which it doesn't have to be that low population states are rural states and overwhelmingly white states, uh, but that is what they are, right? So the Senate greatly exaggerates the voting strength of rural white people, and rural white people are increasingly becoming Republican people. So Something that started to give me pause is like, do Democrats really want to create a situation in which a Senate? I, it seems to me the Democrats should expect to be in the minority in the Senate more often than not. So shouldn't they want to increase the power, the blocking power of Senate minorities in a world where the path to a majority is, is really, really difficult?
1: Yeah. So this is the other side. This is the way the filibuster might, getting rid of it might advantage Republicans. So the thing I I, I try to argue about this in the piece is this really depends on what Democrats do with uh, a, a more usable Senate if they got rid of the filibuster. One of the people I talked to for the article is Stasha Rhodes, who's the executive director of a really, really cool group called 51 for 51. And 51 for 51 is a group that is advocating for DC statehood, through a fifty-one vote process, and the, the 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 very simple insight here is that, like on a lot of things, uh, tons of Democrats say they support DC statehood, but so long as they do not support getting rid of the filibuster either in general or at least for that particular uh, idea, because you can get rid of the filibuster just for some things, right? Uh, over the past. 10, 15 years, uh, I guess I had meant to come back to this. Democrats got rid of it for judicial nominations, uh, non-Supreme Court judicial nominations and appointments, executive appointments, and then Republicans got rid of it for Supreme Court judicial nominations. So, Sasha Rhodes' view is, and, and, and this group's view is that it's really important as a small d democratic question of justice that the 700,000 residents of DC have a vote. Um, I would say also it's very important that Puerto Ricans have the uh, choice to be given full representation in American politics. They can choose otherwise, I think, as well. Um, dif- different people want different things there, but, but I think they, they should get that choice. And then you would have the addition of two small states. D.C. would be the highest uh, proportion of African-American voters of any state. Um, and, and Puerto Rico is obviously full of Puerto Ricans. And that would change the composition of the Senate somewhat. Uh, As I've seen the analyses here, it actually wouldn't make it uh, fully fair or balanced um, in any particular way. There would still be a slight Republican lean, but it wouldn't be very big. Um, Or at least I've seen that with you if you add D.C. as a state. Now, if Democrats get rid of the filibuster and then do nothing to democratize the country, yeah, like it will, the Senate will keep becoming more undemocratic and more and whiter and more Republican. John Shade had a nice piece on this where he talked about the Senate as the most structurally racist institution in American life, both because of how it is composed and then what it does with that composition. So there was a really, really important moment uh, a couple weeks ago now or a month ago now when at John Lewis's memorial service. Uh former President Barack Obama got up on the stage and he delivered a very powerful eulogy. But he said, don't just call John Lewis a hero. If you want to honor him, you do what he spent his life trying to do, which is ensuring the right to vote. And, you know, Obama laid out a, a series of this. He says we should like rename the-, the legislation, re-empowering the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis legislation. Um, we should get rid of gerrymandering and so on. And then he said, and if Republicans try to stop all that through the filibuster, which is itself a Jim Crow relic, we should get rid of the filibuster too. Now, Obama, in interviews with me, actually, has talked about the filibuster as a problem before. He has never gone so far as to say, if Republicans block X, we should get rid of the filibuster. But that, I think, is a really important thing. Like, do this is just a generalized question of which the filibuster is the first piece of it. Do Democrats believe in democracy as a value? Do they believe democracy is worth fighting for? Stasha Rhodes in the piece has this amazing quote where she says to me that, um, People prefer the story of a democracy to the work required to make one. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit from memory there, but the story of a democracy to the work required to make one. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is a really good member of the Senate, in my view, in, in a bunch of different ways. He's written books about campaign finance reform. He's a Democrat from Rhode Island, a very thoughtful guy. A couple years ago, though, he said something that was really striking, where he was asked by a, a newspaper in Rhode Island about statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, and he said, not my issue. If Rhode Island could get as much federal procurement contract money as uh, D.C. does, I'd be really happy with that. Then he said, you know, there's a good case for Puerto Rican statehood. But, you know, it would feel unfair to Republicans. So we need to figure out what state or like breakup of the state we give them. So it's fair. He said, it's just complicated, like not something I worry about. There's a lot of criticism, including from me. Um, he walked that back then in a, in a way that was very, very telling, where he said, to be clear, if D.C. or Puerto Rico statehood came up for a vote in the Senate, I would vote for it. So here you have a Democrat saying that it is it would be unfair to enfranchise D.C. and Puerto Rican residents. And by the way, Puerto Rico is bigger than like 20 of the states that currently roughly the 15 or 20 of the states that currently have representation. I have the number in the piece. And (laughs) it would be unfair because they might choose to use their vote to vote for members of White House's own party. Like, it's the craziest thing in the world. Um, but it is the way in which the status quo uh, manages to hide its own injustices and make any change to itself seem like itself an injustice. And then, like, when White House goes further and says, like, look, I would vote for this if it came up in the Senate, like, that's a whole problem. It's not going to come up in the Senate with a filibuster. So you never have to vote for it at all. Like, that's just, like, it's total empty air words. And so... in my view, democracy is really important. And one of the fundamental things perverting American politics right now is our democracy has become so weakened. I mean, it's been weak many times in our history and has not been strong for very long at all. But right now, the White House is occupied by the guy who won fewer votes in the election. The Senate is occupied by the party that won fewer votes in the relevant elections. The Supreme Court is occupied by people appointed by people who won fewer votes in the relevant elections. And so three of the four major power centers in American government. government, uh, do not reflect the the will of the American people at all. Like, let's not talk about tyranny of the majority. In those circumstances, we operate currently under tyranny of the minority, and it is becoming more and more dangerous as that minority sees itself losing power. Like, to me, it is existentially important that America actually becomes a democracy. And the only way that has any chance of happening is, one, if Democrats get rid of the filibuster or change it so it's not a 60-vote supermajority requirement, and two, if they then prioritize democratizing this country, not to give themselves power, because the Republican Party will adapt itself and will try to compete for votes it doesn't currently have to compete for. But they have to do it because if they don't, like, it's just going to keep weakening, right? And it is just that you're going to have a Republican Party that has enough power to keep changing rules to try to keep itself in power without actually competing for votes of, say, people who live in Puerto Rico. And just like the core I really appreciate the way you put the core of my thought, but but one thing that I would just add to it is like the core of my thought is that the incentives of political systems really matter, and the more the American political system degrades from being a democracy, the more one party has a path to power that re- does not require winning a majority of the public and in fact requires um catering to the resentments of a declining racial and political uh, group. like you don't want that. You, you don't want that to be the incentive in your system. And so you have to do something radical to change it fast before it entrenches itself. I think Republicans could compete in a, in a true democracy. I think you see that in all kinds of blue states where there are Republican governors. I think you see it throughout our history where the parties change depending on what they actually need to do. But if they don't need to, they won't. And if Democrats don't make them, they won't. And if Democrats don't believe in democracy enough to actually fight for it, then what the hell do they believe in?
2: Well, so my notes here said I wanted to make these points about democracy as a broader issue, uh, but you made them well. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> there we are. So that's good. The conversation ended up in the right place at just about the right time. Uh, I'm going to need to move on to do uh, some more interviews about my book, which you should buy if you are out there listening. One Billion Americans for Sale September 15th. Um, You know, I look, I think that's exactly right, though, where, where we ended, right, which is that he, he, The filibuster, it's this kind of weird thing, Senate procedure, blah, 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 but it ties into democracy, right, in a really intimate way. And I feel like Democrats have not made that turn, right? Something about Donald Trump makes Democrats want to say a lot that like our democracy is at stake and they should take that more seriously in some ways than they do and like really think about it. Because uh, they often feel to me like excessively discomfited by the idea that it's correct to just like demand political equality for people uh, but it's like a completely reasonable thing to, to stand and fight for and to and to play tough for right it's not it's not dirty pool to say that american citizens living in the district of columbia should have representation in congress it's often treated as like ha <laughs> ha like a kind of sly treatment but if you just like arbitrarily disenfranchised people in idaho like they'd be really upset they'd be self-righteous about it and their political allies would stand up for them um okay so thanks uh, ezra thanks as always to our sponsors our producer jeffrey geld and the weeds will be back on tuesday